Hi, I'm Emma Shortis. And I'm Chloe Ward. Welcome to the Barely Getting By podcast. This week, we are barely getting fascism. So you can tell we've gone with another pretty lighthearted topic, Chloe. Look, don't blame me. Blame the world. (laughs) That's true. The world is to blame for this. And this, unfortunately, I think fascism is a topic that comes up for me in my work uh, fairly regularly, and it's usually around the question of the United States and Trump and whether we are witnessing the rise of fascism again. And this is something I get asked again and again, especially when I'm going to the media to talk, especially about Trump rallies. You know, I often get the question of, I like, this looked, this looks a lot like Nuremberg 1939, Emma, what do you think? And I've been really reluctant to kind of answer that question for a few reasons. I think it's not a question you want to try and ask in a three-minute answer in a three-minute media interview. Um, also, I don't feel like my, you know, one undergraduate subject in German history really equips me to, to make those comparisons. But luckily um, for me, as usual, I, I have an expert in my life, my friend Chloe, who in fact um, has found her historical expertise to become, uh, is becoming very relevant in the last few years. Yeah, which is not something I ever expected. So I started my PhD in history in 2013 and it was looking at anti-fascism, which so I was looking at a lot of writers and thinkers who were commentating on the rise of fascism in the 1930s and who were fierce opponents of it. In 2013, it was very hard to make a case for its relevance. Um, by 2016, when I finished the PhD, it was, I would say, terrifyingly relevant. <laughs> And it still is, unfortunately. And it's, a, it's as, as we've sort of said, a, a fairly hefty topic. So we've actually decided to, to break this discussion down into two episodes because we, well, we, we want to get it right because it's a really difficult conversation to have. But also we think it's one, it's worth having a more extended discussion because as I said, you know, it's a, it's a really difficult topic and we want to be careful not to be kind of doing it in sound bites, but to be considering it really carefully. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I would say that even with two episodes, we're probably not going to get through all the issues that are raised the second you try to compare Trump to Hitler. So please look out for the show notes. We will be extensively, I guess, annotating those um, with links to further reading that people might be interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's partly because I think, Chloe, you were immediately struck, you know, you said you finished your PhD in, in 2016 with with comparisons to Trump between Trump and Hitler as early as 2016. Like, that really is something that jumped out at you. So, absolutely. There was this kind of upsurge in commentary the second Trump was elected in 2016 and heading towards his inauguration in early 2017, where people were kind of jumping the gun on comparing Trump to Hitler. And I was really reticent about those comparisons for two reasons. The first of them being that a lot of these, a lot of these comparisons between Trump and Nazism and fascism more generally, they took this kind of checklist approach, which I don't think was particularly useful. Yeah. Okay. So a kind of, you know, like going through the motions, like has has Trump and Trump supporters have they done kind of exactly what Hitler did? Have they followed followed exactly the same path as yeah. the Nazis in Germany? Is that what you mean? Yeah. And that's a, that's a problem for two reasons. The first that I think that if you do take that sort of checklist approach and you're asking, if you're asking Trumpism to meet a certain set of criteria to qualify as fascist, then you're going to miss out on things. I mean, if if your standard for what is fascist is genocidal tendencies or actually perpetrating a genocide, well, the Nazi party could say that it hadn't perpetrated a genocide in 1926. And I know that's putting it crudely, but it is true. And if you do have a very strict 
strict set of criteria for what is fascism, then that does give the contemporary alt-right and the hard right a degree of plausible deniability, which I think means that some of the signs of what, of the radicalisation of the right, will be missed by people like us. Absolutely. And and that's happening already in the US. We can see that happening around, for example, kind of farcical debates, which I, I think we'll kind of get to in a bit more detail later, around whether migrant detention centres are concentration camps or not, whether you can call them concentration camps. And we saw exactly what you're talking about, this kind of con- this kind of debate about whether you can even use that term and the suggestion that you can't because that means that you're calling Trump a Nazi and Trump can't be a Nazi because he and his regime haven't committed a genocide. And the obvious kind of addendum to that is yet, which is also terrifying, but it is it is kind of constructing this false argument which you can't possibly win when those are the terms that you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And what I would also say is that these kind of really strict approaches to comparing Trumpism to fascism, they, they also they risk missing what's new and what's novel and how the right is kind of can be putting a contemporary spin or a different spin on what we've seen in the past. And that is one of the perils of, I think, using the past as true stricter guide to what's happening in the present. Absolutely. And I think most historians, at least, would, would agree with you in that. But it is, I think, a motivating question for a lot of discussions and, and coverage around what's happening in the United States and around Trump. And it is around kind of understanding what this political phenomenon is. And I think that the easy go-to again, is this kind of comparison with fascism. And I know it's something that you've thought about a lot. And I think that's probably the driving question that we're trying to get out in this episode. And that's a question of whether we can call what we're seeing the rise of fascism and whether that's a a way of understanding what is happening. Yeah. And since, you know, since we started looking at this issue in preparation for this episode, I have gone back to what is a kind of disturbingly vast library of sources on fascism and Nazism. There are, you know, reasons, plenty of reasons why I'm single, but I think my <laughs> bookshelf might be a major one. Um, and I was particularly drawn to an essay by the Italian writer and scholar Umberto Eco. Um, Emma, do you know Umberto Eco at all? Or? I do actually, through more through my kind of the cultural studies aspect of my Italian language diploma rather than his, I guess, more intellectual work. Yeah, so, I mean, Umberto Eco was an absolute genius. He was a, pol- he was a true polymath and he wrote this wonderful essay in the 1990s called Eternal Fascism for the, for the New York Review of Books. And in it, he put together a list of what he saw as these recurring features of, of fascism, whether it's in the, the context of Nazism in, in, in Germany or phalangism in Spain in the 1930s onwards or Italian fascism. And he was very careful not to call this, call this a checklist. It was, more like, it was more like a list of symptoms, you know, in the way that, you know, I guess the analogy would be to the way that a doctor might diagnose an illness. If you see some of these things and you put, if you see some of these symptoms and you put them together, then you can make a diagnosis, but not all of them have to be present to, okay. you know, call someone sick or in this case to call like a nation fascist. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, it absolutely yeah. does. So you don't, you don't have to tick every single box in order to, I guess, diagnose a fascist, the rise of a fascist regime or a yeah. fascist movement. Yeah, absolutely. And the other reason why I thought this was a really interesting way of looking at what fascism is in the past and in the present is because Umberto Eco is really careful to point out that 
you, all you need is one of these elements of fascism to create the circumstances in which fascism can grow. So I thought that might be a really good starting point for how we approach this discussion about Trump's America and whether it is or whether it's heading towards becoming a fascist state. Okay, so I, I mean, I think the the obvious, I guess, for me, example to start with is the one that I, I was talking about earlier, which is the, the phenomenon of the Trump rally, which I'm often asked to comment on, you know, like Trump Trump tweets all the time, Trump says things all the time, but the, the ones that I get calls about are his rallies, especially when he said something particularly outlandish or the crowd has done something particularly crazy or, you know, there's been violence at his rallies, which has happened before when, you know, protesters get kicked out. And I think... You know, there's a reason that people are so struck by this comparison between some of Trump's more extreme rallies and this idea of kind of Nuremberg rallies in Germany and and the obvious parallels between them. For me, I've always kind of gone back to to looking at the domestic context for those rallies. So I've looked at the the history, I guess, of, pro, of essentially pro-Nazi or pro-fascist rallies in the in the United States. This kind of, I guess, the origins of America first. So that kind of direct line of white supremacy through American history. But I think it's it's worth, I guess, investigating the kind of spectacle of this rally where Trump commands the stage and commands audiences with kind of call and response, um, with, you know, continual, continually revisiting the same themes. You know, he's still talking about Hillary Clinton conspiracies several years later, you know, long after he's won the election, and it's still getting kind of... I don't know if the word rabbit is too strong, but but it riles up his supporter base in these arenas in a way that is is really striking. So I guess my first question to you, Chloe, is is this an example of, of the kind of new or neo-fascism in the United States? Well, the first thing to say is that spectacle in politics absolutely doesn't belong to fascism, but fascism really made an art of it. So if we're going to compare fascist rallies of the 20s and the 30s and even the 40s with what we saw before Trump came came to power and even during his presidency, then I guess the first thing we should focus on is the content. So we should talk about the way that Trump plays on people's emotions, which again is something that is common to politics but is a particular skill of his. And I guess the real elemental appeal and the appeals to instinct that he that he I guess draws out from his audience through his through what I guess could be called demagoguery and his demagogic speech speeches. I guess there's also a more compelling comparison if we look at the way that Trump's rallies and his public persona depends on the perception of scale. So, I mean, you can probably refresh my memory, but there were lots of accusations about how he's fabricating attendances at his rallies. In the early days? Not just the early days, up until today. So, in fact, that that was kind of one of the controversies that kicked off the Trump presidency. So, at his inauguration, which is a kind of celebration of him assuming the presidency, um, right at the start, he made arguments about it being the biggest inauguration ceremony, celebration, whatever, you know, in the history of the United States, which was, again... easily falsifiable. You know, we had kind of drone footage of Obama's inauguration compared to Trump's inauguration and Obama's was was much bigger. And then we had this controversy about whether the the National Park Service, which provide these photos, were even allowed to put put them into the public domain. Um, We also had Trump lying about things like 
whether it was raining or not at the inauguration, but the the controversy was at around the crowds, I think, and the crowd size. And he has continued to do that. He's continued to talk about having the biggest rallies in the history of, you know, whatever state or whatever city of selling out um, stadiums in various cities when, you know, he hasn't. And again, it's like fairly easily falsifiable, but it doesn't seem to matter. Like people still seem to believe it. And he talks about, you know, the huge lines of people waiting to get in to see him and um, and and the kind of, I guess, the, the kind of rabidness of the crowds when they do get into those stadiums. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of brings to mind for me, I guess, what wasn't necessarily outright fabrication by, um, by fascists, especially the Nazis, but their use of cinematic technique and techniques to to emphasise and exaggerate the size of crowds, which goes to this perception of a mass movement and its sort of additional political potency because, you know, it enables the leader to say that they have huge masses of people behind them. So it puts me in mind of um, Leni Riefenstahl. Have you heard of her? No. Okay, so she Leni Riefenstahl was a German filmmaker who made a lot of propaganda films for the Nazis. She's very well known for her movies that documented the 1936 Berlin Olympics and also for the film Triumph of the Will which documented the Nuremberg rally. And, of course, you have to be really careful when you're, I guess, complimenting the talents of a fascist filmmaker who put her skills in the service of an evil regime. But she was extraordinarily skillful in emphasising scale and, I guess, the presence of of Adolf Adolf Hitler. Um, And that's... While I don't think that Trump clearly, with these clumsy lies, has the same ability, or you know, he's kind of transparent in his like in his falsifications, but it is the same. It is with the same purpose, which is about emphasising the size and the scale of political appeal in order to bolster the reputation of that leader. Which Trump absolutely does. You know, I mean, while while in the kind of mainstream media, these are these lies are easily kind of debunked. Trump produces his own propaganda with these kind of like big scale videos showing huge crowds and and people loving Trump and greeting him and waiting in line. So it sounds like it's kind of attempting at least to do a similar thing. Yeah, but at the same time, we do have to remember that this is also in the context of you know, of the sort of high modernity of the 1930s where a lot of filmmakers were were experimenting with these sorts of techniques. So it's not something that belonged to fascism, but it was something that fascism did to extraordinary political effect. Wow. And and I guess, you know, we we know how well Trump uses those kind of, you know, I guess new mediums is probably a bit of an exaggeration, but we know how well he uses the media, the way that the mainstream media, the way that he uses social media. And, And I think, you know, one of the major concerns in the lead up to to the next election that people have been raising is around exactly what you're talking about. It's around the manipulation of videos and and fake content. You know, Trump sharing a, a doctored video of Nancy Pelosi that makes her look drunk, right? Yes. And then you know, once that video is out there and tweeted by the president of the United States, it's very hard to get any kind of retraction. You know, any correction, any deletion comes so so much after the fact that actually it's kind of too late. Yeah, and I do think that this is a point where there is a significant difference between Trump's manipulation of the the media and especially the American media and what was going on under fascism in European countries in the 20s and the 30s. So firstly, the degree of manipulation, so you're talking about Trump editing videos to reflect badly on Nancy Pelosi, that wasn't available to political leaders and to the media in the 1930s for obvious technological reasons. They didn't have the internet. (laughs) And also because of the relative simplicity of the media ecosystem and systems of media ownership. Um, 
what we saw, especially under Nazism, was more the phenomenon of the state's successful coordination of the media to its end. So that's quite different to what we see going on where we have, you know, Trump sort of loose surrogates acting independently through Twitter, or we have things like Fox News, which are, you know, which predate Trump, but find that there is an alignment between their agendas and his. And I think what we're seeing now is an example of where he actually can't control What's some aspects of what's going on in the media and what's going on with Fox News. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would kind of rightly characterise Fox as a kind of arm of an extra arm of the state. You know, it is essentially, or it's kind of become a state outlet for conservatives when they're in power. But so you're suggesting the difference is here that there's actually a whole, now there's a whole other ecosystem of, of media coverage that is not fulfilling that role or is not so easy to manipulate. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think we're coming again to another example that we want to cover, and this is exactly that. It's the idea of how the media can can, and is responding to this, I guess, to outright lies and to accusations of, of fake news. And I think one of the things that's really struck me recently, and it goes back to this question of lying, is our own Prime Minister releasing a press statement about the G7 meeting in France. So Australia is invited to attend this G7 meeting as a, as a guest and the Prime Minister made a statement saying this is the first time Australia has been invited. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, whatever. And then a whole bunch of journos come back and say, well, uh, what? Actually, Kevin Rudd, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was invited to a G7 several years ago. I was there with him in Italy, right? And it, it's it's such an innocuous lie. Like it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't have any real consequences to say, well, I was the first. But it is amazing how I think Trump especially has emboldened other politicians, other public figures to lie with impunity because Morrison has said this. It's not true. It's like easily falsifiable and yet, there are no consequences and I don't think the media is in any way equipped or has any idea how to deal with that. Yeah, and I think I think this is one of those places where we can definitely see some similarities with the rise of fascism but also some differences. Yeah. So I think these similarities would definitely be in the fact that the media is kind of unprepared for these for these incredibly audacious political figures. So they're still treating them in the way that they would treat an ordinary state statesperson who has respect for democracy. And that's absolutely the history of how the media in, you know, in in countries that weren't Germany, how they treated Hitler in, you know, and right up until the eve of war in 1939. But at the same time I think that there is also a difference there because the media in the 1930s, they didn't have instruction from the past. Whereas <laughs> yeah. it's kind of more galling in a way to yeah. see people treating Trump like he is any other president in a democracy when we know we know the history of, yeah. you know, not being not being careful and not calling out these figures, yeah. which is, was presented to us in quite horrifying ways in the, in the 1930s yeah, and absolutely. had huge ramifications for the future. And, I mean, maybe we should talk about the fact that, that this is actually one of the major motivations for us starting this podcast in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I think, I think think here we're sort of getting towards uh, talking about Steve Bannon, who, we, yep. yeah, yeah. Steve Bannon, who is kind of, I guess, you'd have to call him kind of an intellectual figurehead on the right. He's certainly a major player in the creation of this sort of right-wing media sphere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he was part of Trump's White House for a period of time until he found himself on the outer. Have we ever figured out why that happened? Oh, I guess the same reason 
any Trump administration figure ends up on the outer, they are falling out, I guess, are falling out with Trump, an ego that got too big and too ambitious in, in comparison to the president. But he's, he, you're right that he's played an extremely important role, first as the as the founder of Breitbart, the, the right-wing news site that had a huge influence on the alt-right in the United States, and then as a kind of playing a role in the campaign and a campaign advisor and then an advisor in the White House. And he is, you're right, he's out on the outer now. You know, he gave some quotes to a, a sensationalist book about Trump. And so we, we didn't, Trump doesn't like him anymore, but he still plays this kind of outlandish role in the yeah. media. Yeah, and I think that's that's how he ended up in Australia because so Steve Bannon, having found himself on the outer with Trump, he's since basically taken upon himself to be this, I guess, kind of the interpreter for the right to the media. And he turned up with, I think, um, Sarah Ferguson from the ABC yeah, right. went to New York last year to interview him. And at the time, it was quite, a, you know, at the time, she was heavily criticised and the ABC was heavily criticised for airing this interview, which was critical of Steve Bannon, but at the same time absolutely gave him a platform that would ease, that, that legitimated his ideas about what the world was facing. I mean, for instance, he talked extensively about the trade war with China. Um, he tried to claim that he wasn't a racist, which is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. And one of the, yeah, the interesting thing that came out of this was that on the one hand we had a lot of people like you know like you were I was criticizing the ABC for airing this airing this interview because it was dangerous but the ABC was incredibly defensive about it and they made this free speech argument in defense of airing that interview because they seemed to be I think they they came out with that cliche that sunlight is the best disinfectant and by airing Steve Bannon's arguments it makes it easier to destroy him but I don't think that's the case is it no it's not the case and it's and it's such an egregious example of white people kind of thinking that they can have a good faith debate about the right of not white people to even exist. And and that was the kind of fundamental problem I think a lot of people had with that kind of interview is this idea that you can debate white supremacists in good faith and if you just kind of, I don't know, like catch them out, like if you ask the right question, if you lay out the facts in exactly the right way, all of a sudden, you know, their deeply racist heart will melt away and all of a sudden they'll be a good person. And and to totally dismiss, I think, the consequences, as you say, the very dangerous consequences of giving people like that a platform and normalising their ideas, which has ended. We know, we have copious evidence that it ends in actual violence and, and a threat to people's actual lives. And for us, that's been the really horrifying thing is this, this utter failure, I think, of the media here and in the United States to recognise that that is what's happening Yes, absolutely. And I think that this is, if we want to go back to historical comparisons, this is another place where the right, the contemporary right and the far right has become very clever at playing the media's game and getting themselves a platform because what they're doing is effectively setting themselves up as as intellectually credible and worthy of debate and as people who are arguing in good faith so that they can then turn that against liberals in the media who refuse to argue them and and say, oh, well, you're you're acting in bad faith. It's yeah. I mean, it's deplorable, but it's also quite clever. And especially when you compare it with the fascism of old, which was quite deliberate in its anti-intellectualism. Okay, so so do you think there's a difference there between that kind of anti-intellectualism and then this kind of construction of an intellectual edifice for Trumpism? I think it's more 
it's more about the brazenness of the right in positioning itself as having intellectual credibility. So if we think about someone like Jordan Peterson, who is the Canadian Canadian psychology professor who set himself up as basically a guru of the old right, he disclaims any any connection or any um, well any real connection with with the right, but he's absolutely enabling them. His stock in trade as an intellectual is kind of this quasi-mystical, um, bizarro. I don't know. I don't know. He, he goes on a he goes on a lot about um, lobsters. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, about yeah, it. yeah. So basically, you know, Jordan Peterson has set himself up as someone who, in his position as an intellectual, is also working to mystify. Um, mystify the world, and that's where he gains a lot of. That's where how he gets a lot of his support, and. I think that's really interesting because it does, it means that he, people like Jordan Peterson and his supporters can have it both ways. So they can say, hey, shut up, you know, lefty intellectuals, but they can also claim that they have that degree of intellectual credibility. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, he at Peterson has a doctorate and, and so he has that kind of institutional establishment credibility, but he's also at the same time using that in order to try and attack that exact same thing to attack the kind of intellectual credibility of the of the left, and he's everywhere. Peterson is pervasive. He, he comes up in the most unexpected places. I think because you're right, because people, I think often you know it's so clouded in this kind of faux intellectual language that people even have trouble recognizing that he is right wing. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the really concrete things that they've done that does set them apart from fascism is to appropriate the Enlightenment. So what they've basically done is they claim that they are now the defenders of enlightenment concepts of reason and rationality, and that's against what they claim are the subversions of the contemporary left. So they would say that, you know, feminism and anti-racism and anti-colonialism are all anti-enlightenment. So they are the true defenders of the enlightenment. They're true defenders of the Western tradition. And that makes them very different to to fascists, fascists in the past because... In the past, fascist fascism was traditionally against enlightenment. Okay. Okay. So I guess what I'm coming to is that whereas in the past we had a fascism that was all about intellectual obfuscation and mystification. So, you know, for instance, Hitler would talk about this Nazi racial state in very in, in, in mystical terms. And okay. now we have an alt-right and a far right that wants to have it both ways. So it wants to be both intellectually clear it wants to be intellectually rigorous but it also wants to be able to mystify things because that confuses its enemies okay so i guess for me that raises yet another um question around this and that is to to do with enemies so when you are the defender of the enlightenment and and western civilization your enemies are many they are you have many enemies i think that one of the things that defines these disparate groups that find themselves on the wrong side of fascism is that fascism will will classify them as subversives, okay? And this goes back to that point that I was making about fascism and its fear of the Enlightenment. That also aligns with the fact that fascism is against modernity. And, I mean, I know there's an irony there because I've already said that fascism used the techniques of modernity. So, look, there are layers here. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) many, many layers. But fascism does, does deliberately position itself against modernity. Okay, it's, it, it has what Umberto Eco calls a cult of tradition. And that means that it will define as its enemy some, anyone who poses a threat to tradition. Um, traditionally in fascism, we know that Nazism, its, its principal enemy was the Jews. Mm-hmm. 
And that was playing on a long history of European anti-Semitism that would define Jews as rootless, as rootless cosmopolitans who threatened the who threatened the national order in various countries in Europe. Um, it also could be coded into biological racism. So you know, fascism's well, for one thing, fascists, fascists their definition of Jews as a distinct race, and also fascism's um, fascism's antipathy towards black people. Okay. Also takes in homosexuals. So we know that obviously fascism in the past it was extremely it was extremely homophobic, and homosexuals were the victims of that were victims in the Holocaust. So what's interesting here is that while for the contemporary right the enemies haven't really changed, like they are all groups who who the alt right aligns itself against. I think what's interesting is that it's less these days about modernity and it's more nakedly about a threat to themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think There's more I of a sense of direct threat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in the context of the United States, that's that's absolutely how it's being constructed. And you can you can kind of see that in Trump's original campaign slogan slogan, which is about make America great again. So he's positioning, I guess it's the kind of loss of that that tradition that you were talking about, but it's also based on this idea of threat that that somebody else, somebody different, is coming to take away the things that you've worked so hard for, coming to take away all that is great about America, which is you know the best democracy in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So it's playing on all these kind of traditional tropes, but it's also absolutely couched in threat to an established order, mm, which I think. I guess makes me wonder about the people who support Trump. So how do you how do you make how do you weaponize this threat to make it politically palatable to millions of voters? Yeah, it's a good question and I think you know people are still fighting about this about who who supported Trump, who elected Trump, who the Democrats should be trying to win back because they they've kind of crossed over to Trump. And it is, you know, initially there's this kind of trope that it's it's white working class people who voted for Trump. It's the Rust Belt, you know. It's the it's the disenfranchised, disempowered workers in in car plants in Detroit who've lost their jobs and who have legitimate economic insecurities. That is that is absolutely partly true, but if you kind of look at the demographic breakdown. It's also quite well-educated white people who are voting for Trump. It's people with college degrees, middle class and above people often who are supporting Trump. And I think it's really important to emphasise, you know, white voters. This is about, in the United States, this is not so much about class and and this idea of the kind of Rust Belt worker against the rest, against the elite of, of the eastern of the East Coast and the West Coast, this is is about race, and it's a, again that idea of threat. So, so historically in America, the United States is, is I guess, quite fairly different to somewhere like Britain, for example, where you can see class divisions playing a really big role in politics. In the United States, there's been a really successful effort to subvert the influence of class and to to I guess kind of slot in race in those divisions, so that it becomes a question of racial hierarchy in the United States, which of course is, you know, goes back to to the history of, of African-American slavery in the United States. And what Trump is tapping into is this idea that, that white people have always had a certain status in the United States. So even if you're a poor white, you still have a certain amount of privilege, deserved privilege, above people below you who look different to you. And that is exactly what Trump is tapping into. So that... Y- 
basically, to kind of put it crudely, instead of people of cl- of a certain class aligning together and looking to the one the richest one percent in the world and saying, well, actually, you're the reason that our economy is collapsing, that our that our infrastructure is falling apart, that we have you know no security, no stability, no prospects for our children, no healthcare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Instead of looking up to that, often Americans will look down to threat, and that is exactly what Trump is playing into. Yeah, and I think what I'm hearing there is that what we have is, I guess, a more or less, or compared to the present, a kind of latent racism that is that sits underneath the skin of the entire American polity, and it's when. I guess, when people come under threat in another way. So, for instance, through economic failure, through the fail, you know, the apparent failure of the American state, that that will become to the fore of their politi- of their, you know, what they're doing politically, and that's something that Trump has quite effectively exploited. And that's absolutely similar to what happened in Germany in the, in the late 1920s and 1930s, where you had a series of economic crises and Hitler was able to exploit that to turn Germans against, not that they weren't, you know, not that there was not already anti-Semitism that was rife in German society, but that he was able to weaponise that and turn that into a potent political tool. tool. So, yeah, that's absolutely a place where we can see these similarities between what's happened in America and what happened in the past, especially in Nazi Germany, where people had a... People who felt themselves slipping were eager to, wanted to regain that status and if that meant climbing up on the backs of the of marginalised people in society, then so be it. Absolutely, and I think that's, exa- that's exactly Trump's message and as just as you emphasise, it's really important to say Trump didn't create this racism. You know, it's it's been there for a very long time. He weaponised it in a way that I guess others haven't, you know, and one of the really, some of the best analogies for Trump that I've seen, and I wish I could find the the person who originally said this, was that Trump, what's different about Trump is he says the quiet parts loud. So there have been racist presidents, like extremely racist presidents. You can go, you don't have to go back that far to have a, like actual slaveholding presidents. But what Trump does now in this kind of modern era is is not be quiet about his racism. He's not being subtle. He's not using terms like Nixon's silent majority or Nixon's southern strategy, which was absolutely a kind of uh, was absolutely a racist strategy. He's being he's being loud about it, and we are seeing, I think, a kind of reemergence of this kind of biological racism and actual discussions about racial hierarchies, which is extraordinary and terrifying. Yeah, and again, this is where we you know we have to be it. it I guess the history of Trump's America and the rise of of fascism in America has to be seen as absolutely extraordinary because we have all the lessons before us from the past. We know what happened last time. Um, And I think that it's also really interesting, I guess, if we're talking about a comparison between the present and the past of fascism, to again think about that audacity of, you know, Trump's audacity in basically trashing the norms of of a liberal democratic society Um, I think it's interesting in terms of the context in which he's doing that. So 
Trump is going, you know, Trump is going against, I guess, against, I guess, really established institutions and institutional norms and democratic norms. That's very different to what was happening in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, where part of the reason why Hitler was able to get away with so much was because he was fighting against very weak institutions. So Germany had only had a a true democracy since since the end of the First World War, and it was an incredibly weak democracy. So in a way, his rise was enabled by institutional weakness, yep. but that's something that at first sight makes Trump all the more, surprise, all the more surprising because we kind of assume that American democratic institutions are very strong. Yeah, see, for me, this is something I've been thinking about a lot in, in light of recent events and, and my kind of broader experience with American history because there is this really widespread assumption that those the institutions of American democracy are really strong. You know, it's the... It's the great experiment. It's the greatest democracy in the world. But I have to say I'm I'm not convinced that the institutions of American democracy are particularly strong. And I think if if we understand them as weak, we can actually kind of understand Trump's rise a little better. And that's because, you know, when you talk about the institutions of democracy, of course, Voting is, is the main one, I guess, is the, main, the one that we go to. And and we already know that voting systems in the United State, States are incredibly weak. They're, they're incredibly easy to manipulate. And I'm not, I'm not just talking, I, I mean, of people's minds, I think, will go straight to Russia and, and Russian interference in the American electoral process. And that is true. I think that, you know, we can't discount that, that influence. But, but part of the reason that that there's such an argument about how effective that was is because the Russians were able to do that in the first place. And the reason they were able to do that is because voting institutions are really weak, right? So so the, the most, I guess the obvious comparison is voting is not compulsory. So you don't you, you don't have that kind of check where where everybody has to vote, but also the actual systems, the kind of logistical systems that are used for voting are, are also really weak. They're easy to manipulate. So in the United States, voting is an entirely political process. And I think sometimes we forget that in Australia because our system is, um, I guess, for want of a word, apolitical. We have the Australian Electoral Commission, which is an independent body. It's independent from government and that decides things like electoral boundaries. Um, it, it administers elections and and um, ensures, I guess, that they're free from that kind of political influence or manipulation. In the United States, that's not true. Electoral offices for want of a better word, are actually elected representatives. So they're representatives of a party. State governments, state congresses control state voting processes. There's not a federal election body or equivalent. And so Russian interference aside, we already have historical examples of those systems failing completely. The most obvious one being in the 2000 presidential election when the the vote comes down to Florida comes down to not the popular vote, which Al Gore, the Democrat, won easily. It comes down to the Electoral College and the influence of one state where voting was compromised by things as simple as machines not working. So so in this in these districts in Florida, voters use kind of lever machines that punch holes next to the candidate that candidates or that they want to vote for. And there's this huge argument about those machines not working. So whether in these, they're called hanging chads or butterfly ballots, whether the holes punched all the way through and whether you can count that vote or not. And what happens in this election, it's so close that it comes down to these contested ballots. And we have a legal fight about 
this election. So this is where another institution kicks in, which eventually is is the court system. So we have a legal fight about whether you can count these votes. It goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is kind of seen as the as the major check and balance in the American in the in the American political system. And what happens is we have a four five decision. So there are nine justices on the Supreme Court and we have a 4-5 decision in favour of stopping the count and effectively handing George Bush the election. So what happens is essentially the decision about who is the President of the United States is made by one man, right? Yep. Which is massive because – and like (laughs) – you know, historical counterfactuals are kind of an interesting exercise, but I think often about, you know, what a different world we would live in if that one person had made a different decision and we had a President Al Gore and not a President George Bush. Look, I love historical counterfactual and I think we're going to leave everyone with that, I suppose, more optimistic thought before we pick up this conversation again in the next episode where we're going to look more closely at this decline of trust in institutions and institutional failure in the US and ask if that is really, I guess, setting up the conditions where fascism can flourish. Chloe and I would like to thank RMIT University who have produced the Barely Getting By podcast. Thank you.